Section 3 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lazarus. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Third part of Chapter 1. The youth took the bucket and brought it back filled. Gervaise paid him. It was a sou the pailful. She poured the hot water into the tub and soaked the things a last time with her hands, leaning over them in a mass of steam, which deposited small beads of grey vapour in her light hair. "'Here, put some soda in it. I've got some by me,' said the concierge obligingly. And she emptied into Gervaise's tub what remained of a bag of soda which she had brought with her. She also offered her some of the chemical water, but the young woman declined it. It was only good for grease and wine stains. "'I think he's rather a loose fellow,' resumed Madame Boche, returning to Lantier, but without naming him. Gervaise bent almost double, her hands all shriveled, and thrust in amongst the clothes merely tossed her head. "'Yes, yes,' continued the other. "'I have noticed several little things.' But she suddenly interrupted herself as Gervaise jumped up with a pale face and staring wildly at her. Then she exclaimed, "'Oh, no, no, I don't think anything. He likes to laugh a bit, I think that's all. For instance, you know, the two girls who lodge at my place, Adèle and Virginie, well, he, he larks about with them, but he just flirts for sport.' The young woman, standing before her, her face covered with perspiration, the water dripping from her arms, continued to stare at her with a fixed and penetrating look. Then the concierge got excited, giving herself a blow on the chest and pledging her word of honour, she cried, "'I know nothing. I, I mean it when I say so.' Then, calming herself, she added in a gentle voice, as if speaking to a person on whom loud protestations would have no effect, I think he has a frank look about the eyes. He'll marry you, my dear, I'm sure of it. Gervaise wiped her forehead with her wet hand, shaking her head again. She pulled another garment out of the water. Both of them kept silent for a moment. The wash-house was quieting down, for eleven o'clock had struck. Half of the washerwomen were perched on the edge of their tubs, eating sausages between slices of bread and drinking from open bottles of wine. Only housewives, who had come to launder small bundles of family linen, were hurrying to finish. Occasional beetle-blows could still be heard amid the subdued laughter and gossip half-choked by the greedy chewing of jawbones. The steam-engine never stopped. Its vibrant, snorting voice seemed to fill the entire hall, though not one of the women even heard it. It was like the breathing of the wash-house, its hot breath collecting under the ceiling rafters in an eternal floating mist. The heat was becoming intolerable. Through the tall windows on the left, sunlight was streaming in, touching the steamy vapours with opalescent tints of soft pinks and greyish blues. Charles went from window to window, letting down the heavy canvas awnings. Then he crossed to the shady side to open the ventilators. He was applauded by cries and hand-clapping, and a rough sort of gaiety spread around. Soon even the last of the beetle-pounding stopped. With full mouths, the washerwomen could only make gestures. 
It became so quiet that the grating sound of the firemen shoveling coal into the engine's firebox could be heard at regular intervals from far at the other end. Gervaise was washing her coloured things in the hot water thick with lather, which she had kept for that purpose. When she finished, she drew a trestle towards her and hung across it all the different articles, the drippings from which made bluish puddles on the floor, and she commenced rinsing. Behind her, the cold water tap was set running into a vast tub fixed on the ground, and across which were two wooden bars, whereon to lay the clothes. High up in the air were two other bars for the things to finish dripping on. "'We're almost finished, and not a bad job,' said Madame Bosch. "'I'll wait and help you wring all that.' "'Oh, it's not worthwhile. I'm much obliged, though,' replied the young woman, who was kneading with her hands and sousing the coloured things in some clean water. "'If I'd any sheets, it would be another thing.' But she had, however, to accept the concierge's assistance. They were wringing between them, one at each end, a woollen skirt of a washed-out chestnut colour, from which dripped a yellowish water, when Madame Bosch exclaimed, "'Oh, why, this tall Virginie! Why has she come here to wash, when all her wardrobe is in honour would go into a pocket-handkerchief? Gervaise jerked her head up. Virginie was a girl of her own age, taller than she was, dark and pretty in spite of her face being rather long and narrow. She had on an old black dress with flounces and a red ribbon round her neck, and her hair was done up carefully, the chignon being enclosed in a blue silk net. She stood an instant in the middle of the central alley, screwing up her eyes as though seeking someone. Then, when she caught sight of Gervaise, she passed close to her, erect, insolent, and with a swinging gait, and took a place in the same row five tubs away from her. "'Thou there's a freak for you!' continued Madame Bosch in a lower tone of voice. She never does any laundry, not even a pair of cuffs. A seamstress who doesn't even sew on a loose button. She's just like her sister, the brass burnisher, that hussy Adele, who stays away from her job two days out of three. Nobody knows who their folks are or how they make a living, though if I wanted to talk. Oh, what on earth is she scrubbing there? A filthy petticoat. I'll wager it's seen some lovely sights, that petticoat. Madame Bosch was evidently trying to make herself agreeable to Gervaise. The truth was she often took a cup of coffee with Adèle and Virginie when the girls had any money. Gervaise did not answer, but hurried over her work with feverish hands. She had just prepared her blue in a little tub that stood on three legs. She dipped in the linen things and shook them an instant at the bottom of the coloured water the reflection of which had a pinky tinge, and, after wringing them lightly, she spread them out on the wooden bars up above. During the time she was occupied with this work, she made a point of turning her back on Virginie, but she heard her chuckles, and she could feel her sidelong glances. Virginie appeared only to have come there to provoke her. At one moment, Gervaise, having turned around, they both stared into each other's faces. "'Oh, leave her alone!' whispered Madame Bosch. You're not going to pull each other's hair out, I hope. When I tell you there's nothing to it, it isn't her anyhow. At this moment, as the young woman was hanging up the last article of clothing, there was a sound of laughter at the door of the wash-house. Here are two brats who want their mummers, cried Charles. All the women leant forward. Gervaise recognized Claude and Etienne, 
As soon as they caught sight of her, they ran to her through the puddles, the heels of their unlaced shoes resounding on the flagstones. Claude, the eldest, held his little brother by the hand. The women, as they passed them, uttered little exclamations of affection, as they noticed their frightened, though smiling faces. And they stood there in front of their mother, without leaving go of each other's hands, and holding their fair heads erect. "'Has Papa sent you?' asked Gervaise. But as she stooped to tie the laces of Etienne's shoes, she saw the key of their room on one of Claude's fingers, with a brass number hanging from it. "'Why, you've brought the key,' she said, greatly surprised. "'Well, what's that for?' The child, seeing the key which he had forgotten on his finger, appeared to recollect, and exclaimed in his clear voice, "'Papa's gone away.' "'Well, he's gone to buy the lunch, and told you to come here to fetch me?' Claude looked at his brother, hesitated, no longer recollecting. Then he resumed all in a breath. Papa's gone away. He jumped off the bed. He put all his things in the trunk. He carried the trunk down to a cab. He's gone away. Gervaise, who was squatting down, slowly rose to her feet, her face ghastly pale. She put her hands to her cheeks and temples as though she felt her head was breaking, and she could find only these words which she kept repeating twenty times in the same tone of voice. Oh, good heavens! Oh, good heavens! Oh, good heavens! Madame Bosch, however, also questioned the child, quite delighted at the chance of hearing the whole story. Now come, little one, you must tell us just what happened. It was he who locked the door and who told you to bring the key, wasn't it? And lowering her voice, she whispered in Claude's ear, Was there a lady in the cab? The child again got confused. Then he recommenced his story in a triumphant manner. He jumped off the bed. He put all his things in the trunk. He's gone away. Then, when Madame Bosch let him go, he drew his brother in front of the tap, and they amused themselves by turning on the water. Gervaise was unable to cry. She was choking, leaning back against her tub, her face still buried in her hands. Brief shudders rocked her body, and she wailed out long sighs while pressing her hands tighter against her eyes, as though abandoning herself to the blackness of desolation, a dark, deep pit into which she seemed to be falling. Oh, come, my dear, pull yourself together, murmured Madame Bosch. If only you knew, if only you knew, said she at length very faintly, he sent me this morning to pawn my shawl and my chemise to pay for that cab. And she burst out crying. The memory of the events of that morning and of her trip to the pawn place tore from her the sobs that had been choking her throat. The abominable trip to the pawn place was the thing that hurt most in all her sorrow and despair. Tears were streaming down her face, but she didn't think of using her handkerchief. Now, don't be reasonable, do be quiet, everyone's looking at you. Madame Bosch, who hovered around her, kept repeating, "'How can you worry yourself so much on account of a man? You, you loved him, then, all the same, did you, my poor darling? A little while ago you were saying all sorts of things against him, and now you're crying for him and almost breaking your heart. Oh, dear me, how silly we all are!' Then she became quite maternal. "'A pretty little woman like you, can it be possible?' One may tell you everything now, I suppose. Well, you recollect when I passed under your window, I already had my suspicions. Just fancy, last night when Adele came home, I heard a man's footsteps with her. 
so I thought I'd see who it was. I looked up the staircase. The fellow was already on the second landing, but I certainly recognised Monsieur Lantier's overcoat. Bosch, who was on the watch this morning, saw him tranquilly nod adieu. He was with Adele. You know, Virginie has a situation now where she goes twice a week, only it's highly imprudent all the same, for they've only one room and an alcove. Well, I can't very well say where Virginie managed to sleep. She interrupted herself an instant, turned around, and then resumed, subduing her loud voice. She's laughing at you, seeing you cry, the heartless thing over there. I'd stake my life that her washing's all a pretense. She's packed off the other two, and she's come here so as to tell them how you take it. Gervaise removed her hands from her face and looked. When she beheld Virginie in front of her, amidst three or four women, speaking low and staring at her, she was seized with a mad rage. Her arms in front of her, searching the ground, she stumbled forward a few paces, trembling all over. She found a bucket full of water, grabbed it with both hands, and emptied it at Virginie. "'That a virageant!' yelled tall Virginie. She had stepped back, and her boots alone got wet. The other women, who for some minutes past had all been greatly upset by Gervaise's tears, jostled each other in their anxiety to see the fight. Some who were finishing their lunch got on top of their tubs. Others hastened forward, their hands smothered with soap. A ring was formed. "'Dad, a virageau,' repeated tall Virginie. "'What's the matter with her? She's mad!' Gervaise, standing on the defensive, her chin thrust out, her features convulsed, said nothing not having yet acquired the Paris gift of street gab. The other continued, "'Get out! This girl's tired of wallowing about in the country. She wasn't twelve years old when the soldiers were at her. She even lost her leg serving her country. That leg's rotting off!' The lookers-on burst out laughing. Virginie, seeing her success, advanced a couple of steps, drawing herself up to her full height and yelling louder than ever. "'Here!' Come a bit nearer, just to see how I'll settle you. Don't you come annoying us here. Do I even know her, the hussy? Yeah, she wetted me, I'd have pretty soon shown her battle, as you'd have seen. Let her just say what I've ever done to her. Speak, you vixen. What's been done to you? Don't talk so much, stammered Gervaise. You know well enough— Someone saw my husband last night, and, and shut up, because if you don't, I'll most certainly strangle you. Oh, her husband, eh? that's a good one. As if cripples like her had husbands. If he left you, it's not my fault. Surely you don't think I've stolen him, do you? Uh, he was much too good for you, and you made him sick. Did you keep him on a leash? Has anyone here seen her husband? There's a reward. The laughter burst forth again. Gervaise contented herself with continually murmuring in a low tone of voice. "'You know well enough, you know well enough, it's your sister. I'll strangle her, your sister.' "'Oh, yes, go and try it on with my sister,' resumed Virginie sneeringly. "'Ah, it's my sister. That's very likely. My sister looks a trifle different to you, but what's that to me? Can't one come and wash one's clothes in peace now?' Ah, just dry up, do you hear, because I've had enough of it. But it was she who returned to the attack after giving five or six strokes with her beetle. 
Intoxicated by the insult she had been giving utterance to, and worked up into a passion, she left off and recommenced, again speaking in this way three times. "'Well, yes, it's my sister. There, now, does that satisfy you? They adore each other. You should just see them bill and coo. And he's left you with your children, those pretty kids with scabs all over their faces.' You got one of them from a gendarme, didn't you? And you let three others die because you didn't want to pay excess baggage on your journey. It's your lantier who told us that. Ah, he's been telling some fine things. He's had enough of you. End of third part of chapter one. Recording by David Lazarus.